I'm Maxine McHugh, and this is Talking Teaching. One of the things that I like to do is challenge a student. So I got one girl reading Pride and Prejudice in exchange of reading Twilight. And ah, um, Bravo. How did you do that? She wanted me to read Twilight and I just said to her, well, I'm happy to take that challenge, but here's one for you and let's catch up and have a chat afterwards. That's Penny Jones from The Little School That Could. Huck Hobram Secondary in regional Victoria got its act together on reading. We'll hear from Penny shortly. Well, good to have your company. And to teachers everywhere who've headed back to classrooms in the past few weeks, all the best for the year ahead. Now, as you grapple with schedules, strategic plans, data banks and teaching and learning plans, we hope you can take some time out to listen to our Talking Teaching podcasts. You'll hear interviews on a whole range of issues relevant to your practice. Now, what could be more relevant than how to teach our own stories, our nation's literature, poetry and drama? Now, sad to say, and this is true across the states and across sectors, when it comes to our students' familiarity with the best of Australian writing, well, it's not a pretty picture. But Larissa McLean-Davies is on a mission to change that. Larissa is one of my colleagues here at MGSE, and she's developing programs that are designed to boost the study of Australian literature with fresh resources specially designed for English teachers. Larissa is Associate Dean of Teaching and Learning. She did her PhD on the second wave of Australian women writers. And it goes without saying, she's a dedicated reader of Australian fiction. So, Larissa, welcome. Thank you, Maxine. It's been 10 years since the mandating of the teaching of Australian texts in the Australian English curriculum. So I'm just wondering, what is the state of play now in our schools? What's being taught? What's being left out? 10 years ago, the Australian curriculum, the first national curriculum for this country, took the somewhat uh, radical move of, and it shouldn't be radical, but it was radical, of mandating the teaching of Australian literature at every year level. And it's interesting to note that it took until 10 years ago for this to be the case. Now, in some states and territories of Australia, this was always the case, but in other places, teachers and, and curriculum authorities hadn't been obliged necessarily to teach Australian literature. So for some teachers and for some places and contexts, this has been quite a shift particularly in the primary years, and particularly the curriculum asks us to look at the works of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders and and also the texts of Asia, and look really broadly at what constitutes Australian literature. So where are we? We've been fortunate to be involved in various different research projects here at the University of Melbourne, where we've been asking teachers, how's it going? How are you experiencing the teaching of Australian literature and what are you doing with your students? So one project we did in in 2016 and 17 and supported by the Copyright Licensing Association, the Cultural Fund, and we were interviewing and also uh, surveying teachers across the nation, asking them, what texts are you teaching? And of course, these are the, the people who are interested in and even committed to the teaching of Australian literature. Interested enough to respond to your Inter- survey. Interested enough to respond to our mm-hmm. survey. So we do have a list of sort of the top 10 that came from those respondents to the survey, over 200 across the country. And what is really interesting about our top 10 uh, is that we are teaching from year 7 to 10 uh, texts that are not necessarily 
so contemporary. We, we are teaching texts from our favourite author, John Marsden. We're teaching a text by Melina Marchetta, Looking for Ella Brandy, which I think Maxine was on the list when I started to become an English teacher. It goes back a few decades, well, that one. Well into that, yes. So from 1992, we do have some more contemporary ones. We have Ando's The Happiest Refugee, but we also have Philip Gwynne's Deadly Anna, which again is a text that's been on the list for a very long time and it represents Aboriginal people, but of course uh, Gwynne is not a, an Indigenous author. So I think we can say there's some texts being taken up, but we do see still uh, a leaning towards texts that are perhaps not so contemporary and particularly not really representing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders so well and not representing women so well. Larissa, what's happening at the year 11 and 12 level? What, if any, Australian texts are being taught? Well, we do have from a, a different project, a very broad national project called Investigating Literary Knowledge in the Making of English Teachers. So I'm fortunate to be uh, leading that project with colleagues from a range of universities around the country. And what we see at year 11 and 12 is, in fact, there's a bit of a drop-off in the teaching of Australian literature in the senior years. So our project there looks at the fact that in its seven and eight, we might have up to sort of 53% of texts that teachers are saying, look, we're looking at a whole range of Australian texts there. But when we get to 11 and 12, we're much more around the 20 to 20%. Sorry, 20, about 20%. 20% of texts of are, are Australian. Are Australian. Yes. That's very low, isn't it? It is, you know, sort of 20 and maybe getting up to 25. So it is low. And again, we're looking at our top text, to give you a bit of an insight to research, hot off the press, Maxine, is Jasper Jones, Craig Silvies, and a very, an excellent text, a wonderful text. But again, when we look across this suite of texts, we do see what we might expect canonically. We see male Australian writers, we see particular stories having a greater representation than perhaps the broad range of Australian stories that we think is really important to have for Australian students right across the nation. So, Larissa, what explains this deficit? Would you agree this is a problem? Because, in fact, we're, we're not exposing our young people to the great breadth of Australian writing and our national stories. So why are teachers not putting a greater variety of material in front of young people? I think there's a range of things that are in play, and I'll just try and, and hit on a few of those. One is that we are in a very high stakes environment in, in most of our country around the teaching of English. There's a long history of knowing certain kinds of texts, canonical British texts, canonical American texts. And we know that when the teaching of English formally started in Australia, it was very closely connected to becoming English and having a close connection to an imperial sort of mother country. And so some of those, uh, I guess, biases, some of that culture remains in our English syllabus. And what we perceive and what our examination system perceives to be valuable literature to study still remains very closely linked with, with North American and with British kind of history. I'm not suggesting that we have not increased the teaching of Australian literature over time. Certainly in the 1940s, when Australian literature was being formally studied in institutions, there was a great debate whether it should even be included. You know, we had good examples. Yes, I think you've unearthed some extraordinary yes. comments from the 30s and 40s, haven't you, in your some, research? Yeah, comments from, you know, a professor of literature at Adelaide University, Professor Stewart, giving his first 
lecture around um, from the Commonwealth Literary Fund saying, in fact, I can't really talk about Australian literature because there isn't any. Mm. So thanks very much for funding it. But <laughs> and I'm, that was, what, what date was that? Yeah, 1940s for that. It's extraordinary, and, we, and of course, we shouldn't uh, get away with just looking at Adelaide. Of course, at the University of Melbourne, Professor Cowling had a long debate in the age about, you know, he was really indicating that there was very little merit in studying Australian literature. It wasn't Indigenous like the gum tree. It was something that was located elsewhere. So we but have if, that history. But well, we do have that history. But if we leap over to the 60s and 70s, mm. when, if you like, there was a, a cultural renaissance around mm. the arts in Australia, yes. did we not have a boost then? We certainly did. And in fact, I think that boost is the reason I became interested as a student of Australian literature. So the Whitlam government, with the funding that was released to publishers and independent publishers and a whole range, you know, McPhee, Gribble, a range of particularly women's publishers, that had a great impact on what was taught and read in schools. If we come to today, it seems to me that, you know, we've we've never had a more lively mm. uh, local publishing scene, a lot of top-line prizes for writers, writers' festivals across the country, although I, I would concede they tend to draw an older audience. But then we look at the situation in schools and it is, as you've described, um, you know, pretty lean. Well, I think there are, there are ways in which we need to resource the teaching of Australian literature. There's a lot of evidence to show that, in fact, because we haven't routinely taught Australian literature in schools, we do have a lot of our English teachers who may have had some limited exposure to the teaching of Australian literature. I mean, all of the the teachers who willingly give their time to to our work and research, there's an absolute desire to support the teaching of Australian literature, but sometimes our teachers register that they don't feel necessarily confident to teach Australian literature or that they need better resources. You know, there are many, many resources for the teaching of Shakespeare that have been built up over time, but resources around our own texts certainly may be more lean. I said at the beginning of this that you're on a mission to actually do something about this. And so you're working on a few partnerships at the moment. Can you give us a a flavour of some of the practical things you're working on that will help address this? Certainly, I think we've done enough research now to know that, that there is an issue that we need to address. And the curriculum 10 years ago has recognised that. But this resourcing is going to require people working together. And so we are certainly looking at ways in which we might be able to empower teachers to become researchers of Australian literature is one of the key things we're looking at. We're looking at a range of of workshops. And we're also looking at the ways in which we might be able to better articulate the value to students of studying a range of Australian literature. Because one of the things that's missing in this Maxine is the student voice around what it is, what, what what do you get when you've read a real range of Australian literature? How does it help you understand the country that you're in, but then the place of that country in the world and connect to other students and other people in your society? So we're looking at partnerships with cultural institutions and a range of different places, early days, but we're certainly well on the way with those conversations in that we might be able to both empower teachers to be researchers and advocates of Australian literature and also be able to share some of what it is and what it means for students to really have this rich experience of our literary work. Many of our writers would have their archives with some of our big libraries and that. Yes. So you would think that there'd have to be rich pickings there. That's right. For, I suppose, teachers who can find a bit of time out, if you like, to do that research and develop some curriculum materials. We're certainly looking at that, Maxine, and, and untapped resources that we have in archives right around Australia. Here at the University of Melbourne, we have the Germaine Greer Archive, for example. Mm, wonderful archive. Wonderful archive. Now, you know, to give teachers time... Uh, we know that teachers are incredibly busy and pressed with a whole 
whole lot of, of demands. And so looking to have projects, research projects that have an intensely practical outcome. So, you know, giving teachers the opportunity to become the experts in Australian literature, which I think is something that we haven't been able to focus on enough. Larissa, what is the cost of not addressing this in a more comprehensive mm. way? I mean, would we have to worry about, if you like, young people coming into university courses? And I'm particularly thinking, say, of the next generation of English teachers. It is a really serious issue. One of the great joys that I have is working with pre-service teachers here at the University of Melbourne, people who are becoming English teachers. And one of the things we do very early on is we ask them to give us quotes of the texts that they've remembered from their own high school experience. And this is a very small sample size in a sense, and it's it's anecdotal. But the texts that they remember are very rarely Australian texts. Mm, interesting, isn't it? And I guess what that means is you locate your imaginative life outside of the places in which you live. And it's not to say we know that literature can take you to far-flung worlds and give you experiences. There's a lot of research, you know, dating right back to the 60s and earlier about the value of reading literature that's giving you experiences different to your lived experience, your your real-life experience. But by the same token, if you don't understand that stories can be told that are representing your experience and representing the experiences of the other students sitting next to you who might have a very different cultural or or ethnic background to you, then you don't understand that those stories of those people who are in the flesh next to you are valid and important to know about. And in fact, they contribute to the very rich tapestry of what it is to be an Australian. Uh, And this is not a kind of nationalism gone mad or anything like that, but it is is to say that we must know each other's stories and we must look at the wide variety of stories and we must see then how those stories, a lot of literary studies now understands that any national stories are linked internationally, are linked globally. They're they're bringing up uh, stories from other places and other times. So seeing how our stories as Australians connect with the stories of of people and places elsewhere is fundamental, I think, to our imaginative conception of what we can do in the world. Are your students readers? broad readers? Absolutely. We're fortunate, I think, at the University of Melbourne that we uh, have teachers coming into a graduate program who have all got disciplinary background in literary studies. Now, that is quite diverse. Absolutely. What constitutes literary studies at a university is very different all around the country and around the world. But nonetheless, it is often the case and usually the case that our students become English teachers because they've loved reading or they've loved English at school. The challenge, Maxine, is the time then to maintain their reading life once they become teachers. I ask because there is a there's a wider debate, as you know, mm-hmm. about the extent to which young Australians are appreciating the fact that the reading of literature really is an enjoyable intellectual pursuit, not just a chore. An interesting point, I think, that, you know, one of our stellar prize-winning authors, Charlotte Wood, has made recently, what worries her is that reader satisfaction is the sort of thing that is prized now, which she feels is code for putting material in front of people that is just there to make them feel comfortable, unchallenged, kind of good about themselves. That worries her because she, in fact, thinks it's the opposite. Those things that will challenge you that are really going to extend you. Do you have some sympathy at that point of view? I I certainly do. And in fact, I was fortunate to hear Charlotte deliver that address at ANU. So there's a challenge here, particularly in schools, because we know that there's a, a lot of research that says teenagers who are going to be successful readers need to be engaged. 
by reading. But engagement doesn't just necessarily mean a sort of facile or superficial enjoyment of a text, and teachers know that. But there is a challenge there to make sure that engagement is rigorous and often uh, it can be challenging and, and it can require you to think differently about yourself and, and your life. There's been a debate, as you'll be aware, Maxine, around whether there should be trigger warnings for literature. Now, to my mind, literature is always challenging and we, we don't seem to have trigger warnings for history. You know, history of the revolution is taught here. Yeah, I must say I'm not sympathetic to that no, viewpoint at all. No, but, but, it's, but it's there. But it is there. And, and I think this is the nature of what it is to engage with art and literature as a form of art is confronting. It is challenging and its very purpose is to expand and extend the way you think and understand the world so that you can, as a, a person in the world, behave differently in ways that are going to be richer for the society that you're part of. In fact, we see this in the data for our teachers. What's their major concern when they're teaching Australian texts? It is the relevance to the student cohort. Now, you can see that as a very positive thing, but you can also potentially see that as a way in which certain texts will not be shared because of what is perceived as, you know, lack of engagement or lack of relevance to this particular cohort. So we've got to be very vigilant about that. Well, one of the things we like to do at Talking Teaching is to highlight some of our many success stories. Now, it's true that we have some decent-sized challenges in Australian schooling, but it's also true that there's tremendous energy and highly focused efforts going on into lifting academic performance. So here's a story from Penny Jones, who is lead teacher for teaching and learning at Cobram Secondary, a regional school on the Murray in the northwest of Victoria. Cobram has seen a big improvement in students' reading capacity. Penny Jones, welcome to Talking Teaching. Thank you. Now, Penny, you're the lead teacher of teaching and learning at Cobram Secondary. Now, that's way up on the Victorian border with New South Wales. Tell us a bit about your school. So we're uh, quite a small school in quite an isolated environment. So currently we have approximately about 380 students. We're about an hour away from our largest community, which is Shepparton. And that provides a really lovely environment for us. So our teachers live in the community and therefore have a really close relationship with the students and family that we're working with. Now, a while back, you identified what you call a literacy drought uh, among your students. Now, what were the red flags that you were looking at that you thought, we've really got to do something here? So we're a school that's used data over a number of years, and we've been keeping a track on student performance. But in 2016, we saw quite a drop in our medium high performance growth in our NAPLAN data for our Year 9 students. Um, And probably more disturbingly, we saw a peak happen with our low growth students, so hitting about the 37% mark. And that happened simultaneously with the opportunity to join the Melbourne University Network of Schools and seemed to be a great chance to get in there and do something very proactive because, um, you know, reading is such the cornerstone of education. Were you seeing that drop right across the the grade level? It wasn't just with your year seven 
year eight students? It was particularly that relative growth at our year nine level. And we weren't seeing the mid-standard performance using our PAT reading data that we were wanting to see. We had a tradition of some underperformance in our reading, but what we were seeing is an escalation of that. Um, And we felt that it was the perfect time to proactively try and nip it in the bud and change the story for these students. So tell us about some of the practical things that you did, the, the strategy that you developed. So through our involvement with UMNOS, we were really lucky to hook into the Shepparton or the Golden Valley Network. And the dropping reading that we saw wasn't unique to our school. It was actually something that was happening across the entire Golden Valley. So our network was quite unique because we did a cohesive approach to reading. And that allowed us over a three-year period to access some amazing professional development through Melbourne University, but particularly with Diane Snowball, who came in and gave us the very specific strategies about the explicit teaching of reading comprehension within our classes, but also about the value of independent reading on a daily basis. So we combined both of those approaches, changed our entire structure of the school to allow that time of a morning, but also coupling that with um, explicit instruction across all areas of our curriculum. Di, I should say, is a very well-known consultant who goes into a lot of schools and she's had decades of knowledge about uh, improving literacy. What were some of the things she said to you and your teaching team? Because this is for the whole school, isn't it? It's not just one person trying to lead this. What were the things she said to you that you thought, yeah, that's how we have to apply this. So it was probably a series of stages that we needed to go through. So firstly, what seems surprisingly obvious now, but literally allowing students the opportunity to read, but more importantly, to read books that they wanted to read rather than that we dictated. So I think like many secondary schools, we took a very traditional approach that um, students were given a set text at a year level and that's what they read and that was the reading that was taking place. And we moved to the process of 20 minutes every morning that students could read whatever they liked as long as it was a book that was within our classroom library or that they brought from home. So that was our first stage is literally just getting students to read and find some joy in their reading again. We built from there through a series of mini lessons that started off with instruction to teaching staff, teaching them and upskilling them on the variety of reading comprehension components and for them then to take that into the classroom and initially teach it within our Illuminate program. our independent reading program, but making sure that those lessons were being consolidated in the subject areas. So students learnt not only how to read fiction, but how to apply those same set of skills in a history classroom, a science classroom or a math classroom. So giving them subject-specific knowledge about how reading looks in particular areas. Tell me more about that dedicated reading time? I mean, is is it about uh, creating, if you like, the space to get kids away from screens, to slow them down, to get them to actually physically turn pages? What's going on in that process? So I think our initial survey that we did with our reading across the school indicated that most of our students didn't read on a daily basis. They didn't like it? It wasn't a preferred leisure activity? Yeah, not identified. Not coming widely from families where books were located in the home. More than 50% of our homes, um, students report had less than 10 books within their home structure. And the research that Diane shared with us of the tremendous impact that that has on developing students' reading passions. So we needed to give students a space where they were allowed to read, possibly encouraged and enforced to read. And very quickly, the feedback that we got from students is that it was such a lovely, calming way for them to start the day. And maybe it took six 
10 weeks for them to get into that pattern. And what we started to find is that when we try and stop their reading to do a mini lesson, we faced initially resistance because they were so engaged in the process of independent reading. For some, it took a little bit longer. It's the importance of knowing literature and being able to match students up appropriately with books. And for some students, that can take quite a while until we can capture the appropriate genre that's going to fire their imagination. How do you move students who are not natural readers, who might be resistant to reading, how do you move them from, say, the easier text to something more challenging, something really emotionally engaging, something that stretches them intellectually? It is a very slow process. And the advice that we had from Diane was firstly, allow them just to get some joy into reading. And what it requires is teachers of the Illuminate program really getting to know their students intimately and to know them as people, which is great in a country school. I think it's something we do really well, but also to know them as readers and slowly encourage them. Now, we know for some readers, they will stay set with a particular author or a genre. And although that's not desirable in terms of developing vocabulary and skills, it's getting the balance right because reading in itself is better than not reading and then slowly pushing them and guiding them. One of the things that I like to do is challenge a student. So I got one girl reading Pride and Prejudice in exchange of reading Twilight. And ah, um, bravo. How did she do that? She wanted me to read Twilight. And I just said to her, well, I'm happy to take that challenge, but here's one for you and let's catch up and have a chat afterwards. And I was surprised. I enjoyed the book that I hadn't read and didn't expect. And she enjoyed Pride and Prejudice. So I guess it's just finding those little motivations and developing the relationships with students. In fact, you have a critical role, Penny, because you oversee the school's library. Now, how have you developed that and developed the richness of, of literature in that library? Look, it's been a challenge for us. Again, we're a small school and finances are tight. So we've had to be very strategic. We were also compounded that about the same time that we signed up with UMNOS, we were once a community library. So one of the last in Victoria where the community library was based as a part of the school library. So simultaneously, we had this situation arise where we were wanting to get kids more engaged in reading, but we actually lost one of our main sources of literature within our community as it moved off site. We're fortunate to be able to dedicate some money initially into our fiction collection. And it's knowing literature. I'm a, an avid reader. Um, I also am fortunate to have teenage girls who are avid readers. Um, um, and just having a wide reading group. So it's really lucky when you're tapped into the teenage community. So let's let's come to what you've seen from the Illuminate program. You've been going for a couple of years. What is your student feedback from the program? Look, we try and gather student feedback on a fairly regular basis and largely it's been positive. One of the things that students initially were saying was that there were active processes that were taking place when good readers read and they simply weren't aware of that and didn't have the vocabulary to be able to articulate what was going on in their mind. We talk about reading as being creating a big blockbuster Hollywood movie and if you're consciously using those skills, you you are engaging with that huge movie sensory experience and that builds that love of reading for them. Now, yours has been quite a success story. You've really got some runs on the board. Tell us about that. Look, we are astounded with the performance of our students and we're so proud of both our student and staff to take this journey for this very small school. It's been quite life-changing for them. So we were able to get our NAPLAN growth in this year and to see a tremendous improvement in our year nine growth 
what we saw significantly was a dramatic increase from our low growth into our mid-range, but also seeing that we had hit state average for our high growth. So we exceeded state average at middle growth and it met state average. So for a very small disadvantaged school, that was a tremendous story of improvement. And that's just in what, two, two three that's years? That's a three-year period. Yeah. This group- That's terrific. Um, yeah, look, these were our trial groups. So they were our group that we rolled out initially and used to finesse the program that we rolled across the whole school. And probably the greatest delight was having an assembly with that year level when their net plan growth came in to be able to share with them the achievement that they had made and to see that they had actually exceeded state level. The pride in those students' face was its one of the most special teaching experiences I've had. I suppose that's the other important thing, and we shouldn't lose sight of this. I would have thought that students Students who can see that they're moving from, say, average to optimal or low-performing to mid-performing must feel so much better about themselves. And I think that's probably our greatest challenge that we've needed to address because for many of our students, success has been not common in their teaching or their learning experiences. So one of the strategies was to make sure that we celebrated growth every time that they had their testing cycle. So we use patch reading every six months. And one of the things that we do is share and celebrate. So the students get their results, they own that information. And then, and, and I know it sounds silly, but little certificates to show that they've hit optimal or that they've hit growth were tremendous for them because for some of those students, that's the first time that they've ever achieved success and that they've been recognised publicly for that success. That's um, life-changing in the decisions about tertiary education potentially. So what now? You've achieved this amount of success. What's ahead? So I think the biggest challenge that we have is to embed this program as at Cobram Secondary College. We are a college of readers and to make sure that that becomes embedded in the culture for both students and for teachers. As a small country school, one of our challenges is keeping staff. So we do have a bit of a turnover of staff and making sure that we're adequately training and reinforcing that culture every year with our new staff coming through. Our other challenge is to make sure that we can get the right literature in the hands of students and that we're able to continue to resource our library appropriately for that to happen. So our journey going forward is to make this our program. It is our school. This is what happens when you choose Cobram Secondary and making sure that our staff continue the fantastic work that they've been doing as maintaining their role as teachers of literacy, whether you're the maths teacher or the English teacher. Penny Jones, thank you so much for that. And, and I wish you all the best. And for any philanthropists out there who might be listening to this program. If you want to donate some books to uh, Cobram Secondary, I'm sure Penny would love to receive them. Oh, we would love to hear from (laughs) you. Thank you very much, Maxine. Well, that's all for Talking Teaching this week. Throughout the year, we'll have more stories from our network schools and from elsewhere. Now, thanks for your company. Talking Teaching is produced by the University of Melbourne from the Horwood Studios. Our sound engineer is Gavin Neighbour. Bye for now. Bye for now.